Thank you. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I'm glad it's just us. I want to talk about small things this morning. Uh, particularly, I want, to, I want us to identify with Mary. And I want us to, if we can, uh, connect with her in a way that helps us to bring the gospel to a level at which we ourselves are taken with it. And uh, I think of these moments, such as this moment we're going to read about, we call it the Annunciation, as a Mary moment. I think we have Mary moments. Not M-E-R-R-Y as in happy, elated Mary, but as in Mary, a human, a person who said yes to God. Take your Bible, if you haven't already, turn to the Gospel of Luke, right at the beginning, chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 26. I'll read verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. In deceptive brevity, Isaac Watts heralds an event that has changed everything, 
swallowed everything and everyone, heaven and nature, in joy and song. That gives you a sense of the size and the scope of the event. The event that is enunciated, that is announced to Mary. It is an event of cosmic proportion. I've spent the week immersed in pondering, reflecting, and thinking. I'm not exhausted. It certainly isn't exhausted. And I think if anything, I entered trembling this morning in comparison with the magnitude of what we celebrate, what we remember and we are to celebrate. And indeed, Watts gives us a sense of its dimension. Earth, heaven, nature, her king, Lord, every heart, every, prepare him room. Indeed, it has been said the birth of Christ changes everything. All that matters has been fundamentally altered by this single event, the incarnation, the entry of God into human history at a depth and level. It bends the mind to the breaking point. I've been reading this week W.H. Auden's For the Time Being, A Christmas Horatio. To give you a sense, because it takes pondering and reflection and meditation. But to give you a sense of the drama, the cosmic drama played out in this moment, in this announcement, because of the magnitude and dimension of what is taking place, Auden sets the Annunciation in the Garden of Eden to indicate that Mary's acceptance of her role is the key event in the renewal of the world that had been broken by our first parents. Mary's humble obedience in response to Gabriel's invitation inverts and sets right Eve's prideful response to the serpent's invitation to eat the one fruit that God had forbidden. Indeed, in that oh-so-too-familiar carol, is hidden a fierce and wild truth. God has entered human history. Let earth receive her king. Heaven and nature sing. Every heart prepare him room. Which leads me to Mary again because she too had to prepare him room. And when I seek to identify with her and to try and 
Imagine what was occurring. It seems mysteriously, deceptively ordinary in a way that actually draws me deeper into the reality of what was happening and how she was being touched by God. Nazareth, the experts tell us, was a very small, it was a hamlet, maybe 200 acres in dimension, 450 people, maybe. And Mary, in the midst, in the middle of an ordinary day, a day full of responsibilities, a day in which I imagine, as I mindlessly go about picking up the house, she too, perhaps, had her mind on other things. And into the middle of this rather ordinary day, perhaps gilded in some ways by the fact that she was anticipating, she was already betrothed, but anticipating her marriage to Joseph, a future, leaving her parents' home, setting out on her life, uh, an embarking on her life. And into the middle comes Gabriel, the archangel. And when I identify with Mary, I think something this grand, this magnificent, this earth unsettling and changing. How would I respond to the message of the angel? Something this big had to be grand, wouldn't you think? I, I picture Gabriel medievally painted, wings, aura, glory, regaled in immaculate illumination and glory, perhaps into the gloom of this, this cottage, all of a sudden there wasn't a dark spot in the place. Everything was lit up. And there, perhaps with the voice of a James Earl Jones, the angel speaks, Mary. And if I think of it that way, I think I too would have said, behold your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. But as I reviewed this week, what we know of Gabriel, mentioned four times in the Bible. First, in Daniel chapter 8. Verses 16, 17, and 18. Daniel says, Standing before me was one who looked like a man and spoke with the voice of a man. Daniel, full of apocalyptic vision, 
cosmic imagination. God's messenger, God's angel, God's archangel looked like a man, spoke with the voice of a man. Again in chapter 9, 21 the same. It caused me to think of those early angels, those early messengers, when Abraham, sitting outside on an ordinary day, Sarah, his wife, busy in the tent behind him, he lifts his head, we're told. He spots them first. He sees three travelers in the distance. And it says, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him, and he ran to greet them, to welcome them, to extend to them hospitality, one of the most treasured virtues of the Mediterranean, of life. And life was hard. They were a wandering people, a desert people. And Abraham was a dried-up man in so many ways, aged. And this visitor, after Abraham has called out the servings, sumptuous ones, this visitor begins to tell Abraham, that the whole world is going to be blessed through him, that he's going to have a son, and his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Sarah overhears this. She's listening to what's going on and what's being said. And she involuntarily begins to laugh. This is hilarious. This is the most preposterous thing she's ever heard. You'd think that their aura, their glory, their wings would have prepared her. But they haven't. Because there doesn't seem to be any glory, any aura, or any wings. It's the message. It's the preposterous message. It's the preposterous idea that God wants to do something mind-blowing, earth-shaking through Abraham. This wilted man, Sarah herself says it. She laughed to herself in Genesis 18, verse 12, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, like, couldn't there have been better timing? And then she says this, and this is ever so snarky. Should I have pleasure? This is all so very earthly, isn't it? Earthling. And when we meet Gabriel, in the opening of Luke's gospel, the opening 
we're introduced to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest, one of many priests. And as the lots are cast, his order, his division is on duty. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. But the startling thing is that the lot has fallen to him to do something that many priests never got the opportunity to do, and that was to serve in the sacred space, the sacred place of the temple, a place few even saw. It would be his first time. And when he entered there, I imagine he trembled. And we're told that there, Gabriel appeared to him. And it's interesting, I have to add that when you hear the word angel, if you got a humanities education and were introduced to the classics and had a little Greek, you would quickly discover, especially if you had a a little Bible or Sunday school background, that the word that we almost utter phonetically, the word angel is a word that in commonplace everyday usage is used of messengers or couriers. This messenger from God, this spokesman for God, this one who carries a vital message from God, we're told appears. And when I read that, it could be read as though Zechariah caught notice of something that shouldn't be there a man. A figure. There's nothing about glory, light, wings, halo, none of that. Just a message, an incredible, preposterous message. And he's startled. Yeah, nobody should be there. But we're told that Gabriel is standing by the table of showbread. And he's unsettled as would you and as would I be unsettled. In fact, it's interesting to me that it's later in that opening passage that Gabriel has to kind of assert his credentials. And he says, I am Gabriel, he who stands in the presence of God. (laughs) Like, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying because Zechariah is really having trouble taking this all in and really believing it. In fact, as you know the story, he doesn't quite believe it. And for that reason, Gabriel says, you'll not speak until you catch the whole truth, as it were. And so I wonder if as we return to Mary that morning, that everyday morning. And when I read this, it just says, no, it doesn't say that. It says this. It says, Gabriel entered. Almost as if he knocked on the door. And they had this 
amazing conversation. Here's my point. I think we have days like that. What God was doing was one of a kind, unique. This is the Annunciation. But what I want us to identify with is the fact that sometimes when God speaks to you and me, it's an ordinary day. We're in the middle of things. It's a day like every other day. What makes it different is the message. And really, that fact is built upon this one. I've thought about this a lot this week. I've wondered if, you see, because instead of saying yes to God, I often say no. Those are the things that I remember but don't amount to anything. They amount to something, and I remember them because of the yeses to God in my life. And I juxtapose, that is, I, I put in competition or contest yes and no because I've often wondered, what if, what if Mary had just dismissed this as some kind of, you know, some crazy door-to-door salesman stopped by the house. I don't even hardly remember what he said. It was just so wild and out there. And I wonder if there aren't times when we have explained away those occasions when there have been enunciations in our lives, when God has asked us to turn aside, to see someone in need, to see the world differently than we see it, to realize what he can do, to see his, through this world and our lives through his perspective, his plan and his power. Mary said yes to God. And I believe that in many ways we are descendants of Mary. Not in any kind of uh, salvational sense, but even there, in a way, when we share her faith in saying yes to God. This morning, I want us for just a moment to think about the fact that Mary said yes to God, but I don't think it was a yes in a vacuum. I think it was a yes that was, as it were, the offspring of lots of little yeses. And I want to suggest to us this morning that even today, this moment, these ordinary circumstances, God can speak to our hearts. And it can be perhaps a first yes, or a third yes, or a descendant of many yeses. But the yes of a, of a magnificent, majestic, magnificent, just momentous event in our lives when God does something great. It happens because we say yes. And I think the yes of that day begins 
with the yes of today. For her, that yes was not the first time she had said yes to God. I think she had said yes before. I think she had said yes in small ways. And she, in saying yes... I don't even know that she comprehended what we or Isaac Watts or an Auden or others comprehend with our perspective, with God's perspective. But because she said, yes, God did something great. And if you and I can imagine that God can do things bigger than we can even comprehend or imagine, if we'll just say yes, yes today, And the yes today is not a maverick. It's not a loner. It's a yes that not only changes our hearts, but can have an impact on others. And it is a yes that is in a lineage of yeses. And not just ours, but a chorus of yeses. In fact, I want to float to you the idea that when you and I say yes, we enter in substantively into the redemptive work of God in the world today. We are heirs and we are tradents in what God is doing, what he did then. What he did then, he did through Jesus Christ. And when we say yes to him, we enter into what he's doing through Jesus Christ in just the same way. We cannot always be motivated, elevated, exhilarated by the circumstances. It's by the message. It's by the word. It's by the truth. And what I want us to appreciate for just a moment is that we move with Mary in Mary moments, if you will, to say yes to God when we fathom his perspective, his plan, and his power. Yes, a simple word is our gift to God. Yes, adopts his his perspective, his plan, and his power. Mary didn't see herself the way God saw her. 13, 14, I look around. If I were looking for someone to use, my eye wouldn't fall on a 13 or 14-year-old. But she had a willing heart, and that's all God needs. The Bible is replete with stories of just that very truth. Charles Swindoll says, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. Indeed, this was a preposterous, impossible plan. And she needed God's perspective just as we do. She didn't see herself the way God saw her. In verse 29, she was greatly troubled by this statement. I'd like to think, I'm suggesting, I think we grow if we take this viewpoint, that she was not disturbed by his appearance as much as his heralding, God's favor, and that God had chosen, elected to do something world-changing, life-changing. In and through her, yes. 
In fact, he had to say to her, nothing is impossible with God, as we read it in verse 37. I guess we could take that personally. I mean, that God should think we're impossible, but nothing is impossible with God, and we need his perspective to appreciate that. It does remind me of what the visitor said when he heard Sarah laugh, and he was surprised. In fact, we're told that nothing is impossible. He says to Abraham, and she's overhearing this, Abraham, there's nothing God can't do. And a year from now, you will have a child. I laughed. In 1972, I remember it so well. God had gotten a hold of my life. I started going to church. I started believing these amazing things. I thought God wanted to use me. I, I kind of associated coming to Christ with being a used, you know, by him. That I could never be the, the same and that God would use me to help change this world. And so I, and I was <laughs> very shy about this, but I guess it was kind of a witness to this very gumption of God in me that I decided I would apply. It was a big step. It was a yes for me to apply to their intern program. And as I read through it, I felt so unqualified. I went through interviews, a series of interviews, and then there, there came that day when I had to actually enter the office of the senior pastor of this very large church, and it was very daunting to me. I, I remember thinking that this is, you know, I had a new connection to the Wizard of Oz when, when Judy and the Tin Man and the Lion, you know, and the Scarecrow stumbled down that, you know, marble hall. And I sat down in front of him and he made small talk and he tried to make me feel at home and he asked me questions and I know he was trying to, to discern kind of where I really was with, with God. Although he had lots of papers in front of him and he said, it's, it says here that you want to work with youth. Well, sure, I want to work with my own people. You know, I was young. That's where I thought I could be most effective. And then he said something. I, I mean, I didn't even think I heard him correctly at first. He says, so I think God wants you to be a pastor. I think you're meant to preach. And I laughed involuntarily. I mean, it was like a knee-jerk reaction. And then I felt ashamed. I mean, I, it was one of those things like, now how do I make up for this? Because I've insulted you. And later I realized maybe I had insulted more than him. It lifted my eyes. It gave me perspective. Somebody on earth thought maybe God wanted to do something more through me than I ever imagined. You're going to run into that. You're the only one that's going to hold yourself back. And you're going to think it's preposterous. You may not laugh out loud. You, you may just uh, snidely snicker in secret. 
I'll bet you've done it before. I have. Who, me? I look at others and I think how much better qualified. I felt that way this morning, even again, even after one service, sitting here again, I went over the chills, the shakes come over me. Because I want to be, I want to be glorious when I'm talking about the gospel. And we don't feel glorious, but it's the message that has the power. And that's what God wants to root in us. And in a way to each and every one of us, it's all validated by what we're reading here. Hail favored one. Favored means one upon whom God has shed his grace. He smiles upon you. He favors you. He will be with you, he says. And that is the most consoling solace there is. How comforting. That's all we need. Because he will be with us. But she was unsettled by the gravity and the dimension of this. And sure enough, it was bigger than she could have ever imagined. A son. And not just a son. A king. A king who will rule forever. The fulfillment of all of our expectations. The Messiah. The focus of God's work in the redemption of all mankind. And immediately she says, how can this be? Literally, I know no man. Translated, I'm a virgin. She's thinking about the mechanics of this thing. We're a lot like Mary. That's my point. We need God's perspective. I like... Someone who's contemporary to me, Bob Goff, I've mentioned his book, Love Does, before. It's a romp. In fact, throughout the book, he uses the word caper, which is not, you know, something in a salad. It's more of a shenanigan. It's, you know, <laughs> it's an escapade. And he's on escapades for God because God is the God of escapades and preposterous things. And he wants to revive us to the reality that God wants to do amazing things through you and me, not the person sitting to our left or right. And in this celebrity culture, even within Christendom, I mean, oh, those who blog and those who are on television and those who are lifted up and those who are authored and, you know, and we can begin to think that God doesn't want to do something in our Nazareth in our routine, everyday lives. But he does. And this proves it. This is, the, this is part of this announcement. If you don't get this, then every heart isn't prepared. Where you're at in your marriage, where you work, at school, even in your church, it amazes me how we call what... What we sing a carol or a hymn, these are truths that somebody has put into poetry because of a poetry in their heart. 
Goff gets that. And he does these uh, capers for God. And I love this. Just was reading this last week, this, this wording that he used, because he says, uh, you know, God doesn't want us to apply for a position. See, there it is. There's that position. And that's not for me, so I'm not going to apply. That's for other people. That's for heroes. That's for the Marys and the Josephs. But you see, the Marys and the Josephs are the Marys and the Josephs because they said yes to God, not because they applied for a position. And Goff goes on to say that our lives are the position. God invaded not only human history, he wants to invade our lives. He says, as Goff continues, to ordinary people like me and you, that instead of closing our eyes and bowing our heads, sometimes God wants us to keep our eyes open for people in need. Do something about it and bow our whole lives to him instead. That's what Mary did when she said, Behold your servant. And in that she acknowledged God's plan. She acknowledged God's perspective. And she acknowledged God's power. Gabriel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And you think, well, there it is. If only the Holy Spirit would overshadow me and his power come upon me. And yet Paul says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Romans 8, 11. And see Philippians 3, 21. And chapter 2, verse 13. And other places because God wants to conceive his great power and great things in you and me, through you and me. You would expect Paul to remember something like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God says to him, Paul, and whether it was in audible words or an over over plain impression etched upon his heart. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, just as my favor was sufficient for Mary and Joseph and others. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." And Paul then says, well, I'm going to boast in my weakness because I want the power of God to dwell in me. And that's an interesting word because in other situations, in fact, in Polybius history, it's used of troops, the military, taking up residence, not in barracks, not in headquarters, but in occupied people's everyday homes. That's where they're stationed. That's where they dwell. And Paul says, I don't want God's power just to pass on by. I want it to take up its abode in me 
So I'm going to divest myself and I'm going to put away this idea that in my weakness I'm disqualified, that God can't use me, that his preposterous hijinks are beyond me. This world turning upside down crazy God is not outside my grasp and understanding. He wants to work in my weakness. And Mary shows that to us. Indeed, as Paul said, consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. The weak in the world to shame the strong, the low and despised in the world, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Was Mary extraordinary? Not in any way unlike us. One gift, one word, distinguished her, the word yes. In fact, there was an occasion there was an occasion in which Jesus was passing by as an adult, his ministry being recognized. And a woman cried out, "Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed." Referring to Mary, The same Mary that when she visited her aunt Elizabeth called her blessed. You among women are blessed. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And this woman unconsciously in recognition of whom Jesus is, is blessing her again and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. She was extraordinary because of this extraordinary son, this king. And Jesus says something altogether different. He says, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Amazingly, you think of Sarah too. And in Hebrews chapter 11, 11, we're told, by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered Him faithful who had promised. It's not our faith. It's thee who we put our faith in. That's the important thing. Sir Winston Churchill said, men stumble over the truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up, hurry off, as if nothing happened. I had told you I was reading Alden's for the time being. In the introduction, I ran across a Latin expression I wasn't familiar with it. My Latin isn't very good. It's pronounced in medius race. It means into the midst of things. I looked it up. 
I admit I had to. I found its, uh, its origin goes back to the Roman poet Horace, who advised the aspiring epic poet to go straight to the heart of the story. See? Into the midst. In Medius race, into the midst. Go straight to the heart of the story. Instead of beginning at the beginning. And that's the way it's used today. That's where Auden started. At the heart of the story. In the garden. In the Annunciation. That's where we live. In the middle. In the midst. That's where Mary is at the moment Gabriel calls her favor. That's where you and I are at the same moment. That's the point that Sarah Poli made in her documentary, Stories We Tell. The film tries to piece together the tragic and mysterious story of her family filtered through the lens of her siblings as they remember it, as they remember it. Because no one seems to see the whole story when you're in the midst. In fact, that's how the film begins. Her father reading from Margaret Atwood's Alias Grace. These words, when you are in the middle of a story, it, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion. She continues, it's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or someone else. I read that Tuesday afternoon. I made some notes. That evening, interestingly, not surprisingly, there was nothing on television, but I interestingly called up a recording of Sunday morning, which is on Sunday morning. And uh, this was a Tuesday night, but I had recorded it, so there was... uh, Charles Osgood, and they were featuring a story on Cheetah Rivera. Well, you probably haven't heard of Cheetah Rivera. I had heard of her. She became famous through Broadway's Golden Age, and particularly her part, Anita, in West Side Story. And the interviewer said, did you have any, I mean, did you realize, did you grasp how big West Side Story was going to be. I mean, in effect, he was saying, we're talking to you now because of West Side Story, because you became a star because of West Side Story. You were put on the map. Your life is given attention because of West Side Story. Did you have any idea? And she said, nobody ever knows what anything's going to become. And that's where we are, this moment, in the middle. And I suggest to you that this is in Medea's race. This is the point of action. Not the beginning and not the end. And yet what we do in the middle determines 
And what we do in the middle gives dimension to the beginning. And that's what Mary did when she said yes. You and I, in saying yes to God, become a part of what he is doing. And everything I'm saying to you, I validate on the basis of the yes of Mary to the annunciation, to the message, to the gospel, to the reality of what God wants to do in your life on an ordinary day, in an everyday world, in the midst of a crowd. And I want to leave you with the idea that the Christmas story brings dimension to your life and mind that can change everything if we'll just say yes. Will you stand with me? I suppose it's probably unlikely that you've never heard the gospel that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Annunciation is all about. He sent him for you. That every person should make room for him in our hearts. It's a, an amazing story, but it can be your story. It wants to swallow you up and change your life, forgive your sin, and give you a destiny and a heritage. That's pretty crazy, huh? That's the gospel. But if you'll believe it, your world, your life, everything will change. If you've never said yes to God in that way, after I pray, I'm going to be up here along with others from our pastoral staff, elders, their wives, if, if you'd like to come and hear more or pray and make him the author of your life, the storyteller of your life, we invite you to come. But more likely than not, we're just in the midst of everyday things, the hustle and bustle, getting ready for Christmas. I just hope that this morning, for a brief moment, I caused you to stop, pause and think. Maybe this ordinary moment is an ordinary moment in which God wants to do the extraordinary. If so, say yes to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, through the work of your spirit, you're still pulling all kinds of hijinks and capers. And in a very real way, it all begins with yes. We praise you that this can be true in a way that captures our greatest imagination, our life's will, and reveals our purpose and the, the profound nature of what you're doing even today. We praise you for that, the Christmas story in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.